know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation. This is episode 139, and we have Dr. Jill McCracken back. She's a professor of English and Women and Gender Studies at the University of South Florida. She's also the director of Sex Workers Outreach Project, or SWAP, Behind Bars. And this is a national grassroots social justice network dedicated to the fundamental human rights of sex workers in their communities, focusing on ending sex trafficking, violence, and stigma through education, community building, advocacy, and policy. She is busy. Dr. McCracken is also the founder and project director of the Adolescent Sexual Health Education and Research Project. We're going to hear about that. So that program really places an individual's autonomy, choice, and values at the center to advance gender equity and to decrease and prevent sexual violence and trafficking. So she's worked with sex workers and victims of sex trafficking for over 20 years. This has been her her primary research focus, sex work in the sex industry and women and incarceration as well as sexual education, marginalized communities. She really draws on ethnographic and qualitative research methods so that she can tell the story of the lived experience of a people. So thank you so much, Dr. McCracken. I'm so glad that you're able to come back. It's always a joy having you here. Thank you, Celia. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, so tell us about, you have a project um, called Complex Rights and Wrongs. And then I also want to talk about the Adolescent Sexual Health and Research Project. But can you tell us a little bit about the Complex Rights and Wrongs? Yes, absolutely. So we started the Complex Rights and Wrongs Project. We actually, um, it's funded by the Proteus Fund and uh, and um, is in collaboration with Swap Behind Bars. So my position was Swap Behind Bars and as a researcher with USF, Um, basically complex rights and wrongs. The goal here is to try to get a better understanding of how people who are adult consensual sex workers. So people who are choosing to engage or consenting to engage in the sex industry, how their lived experience relates to people who are not choosing. So people who may have been coerced, people who are identified as trafficking victims. And we're also wanting to talk to and have talked to people who have actually been convicted of trafficking. So we know that there is an overlap. And this is largely from my work with SWAT behind bars, right? We know that there is an overlap of people who actually are victims of trafficking and then they get convicted of trafficking, right? Because these these situations are so complicated. So the big kind of research question here is, okay, if we talk to people who have these different lived experiences and we, we, we really require that people have at least two out of the three. So have you consented to work in the sex industry? And have you also been a victim of trafficking, been exploited 
coerced, right? And or have you actually been convicted of trafficking? So those are the three kind of areas. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, and I'm so excited to be talking to you about this, is because we're actively looking for participants right now. So we're doing two layers of interviews. We're doing an initial interview that just tries to get at, okay, what's going on here with your experience? What happened when you were choosing? What happened or when you were consenting? Choice is such a complicated word. So I try not to use it. It's it's really, really complicated. And, and we can talk about that, but I know that your, your listeners understand that as well. So when you were consenting to engage and what happened when you were not consenting, right? When you were, and, and were you identified as a victim of trafficking? And perhaps you didn't identify as a victim of trafficking because we know that these categories, our identities are largely created by our criminal legal system, right? The legislation wants to identify people as sex workers, as victims, as traffickers, and this study is really designed to get at and the lived experiences and stories of people's experience. What does this even look like? And how does it get so complicated to try to inform the general population, but also to inform policy, to mm-hmm. inform legislation? Because currently right now, I don't think that our legislation does a really good job of meeting the needs of both victims of trafficking and of adult consensual sex workers. So it's really designed to inform that. So we're we're looking for participants who want to participate, who want to be interviewed. We ha- it's a community-based participatory research project, which basically means that we've involved people who also identify as sex workers that are directly informing the study, right? And victims of trafficking. So people who are identify as sex workers and victims of trafficking have informed the study act as volunteers in the study. I'm sorry, not the volunteers, as paid interviewers in the study um, and will actually be interviewing people. So it's a community-based project. And when you participate in the initial interview, you'll be paid $50. And it's about a 30 to an hour long interview. The consent process takes a little while. And it's just an initial interview to get a sense of, okay, what does this look like in terms of your experiences? And then we're going to actually choose people that have complicated overlaps in terms of these areas, and we're going to do in-depth interviews. And so we'll go back and ask people if they're interested in doing more of an in-depth to really help us to inform policy. And one of the things that I'm real curious about is asking the experts, and I view all the participants in this project as experts, to say, how do we create better policy? What do we do? Because we're all working in this area. How do we reduce all of the harms that are created? How do we reduce violence? But how can we talk to people who are creating policy and law and legislation and say, no, you've got it wrong. This is what we need to be doing. Or you've got it kind of right here. But when you think about the most marginalized and the mo- and the more hidden populations, you're missing it here. So we... Consider everyone who's involved an expert. And then for the in-depth interviews, we pay people $150 for their time. And it, you know, it's more involved, but it's also paying people for their expertise, for their value to the program. So I I don't know if you have questions. I know I kind of went on on a, a bit there, but that's the complex rights and wrongs project. I think what's what's complex and right about your project is empowering people, giving people voice and choice. Um, acknowledging people as being experts 
participatory action research, sort of partnering with them. Those are all the wonderful ways that we give people a voice and they participate. The other issue, of course, is I am a politician or I am in whatever profession I am. And I just, thank you very much, but I just uh, prefer to see it in a very black and white issue. You're a victim, you're not a victim. Please don't complicate my life with all the nuances of uh, real people's lives. I prefer to see it as a cartoon. There are victims, there are good guys, (laughs) there are bad guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, what do you mean coming along, uh, Dr. Jill McCracken, telling us that there are other people out there that may have more complex blended experiences? Like, I, I don't have time for that. What do you say to that? I think, yeah, I think that's one of the big projects. uh, I'm sorry, one of the big purposes of this project. And I would say we don't have time to not have time for that. Because as we know, our policies are not meeting the needs of the majority of people, if not all people. And so I would say we have to get a better understanding of what's going on. And if we really care, if as a if you know as a policy person if you really care about your constituents your constituents are the people that are experts on this project so we need to be listening to them and we need to be saying how can we make we're always doing this in all different kinds of areas how can we better make policy around in Tampa Bay the water and the estuaries and the, you know we're all doing this so this is one of those things that we have to take time for and it is complicated and it can be heart wrenching but people need to be able to speak their truth and they need to be able to speak out. And one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I really focus a lot on community-based and as you said, participatory action is because I want the people who have the most lived experience at the forefront, right? It's not about me representing other people's voices. It's about people who have these experiences interviewing and talking with other people and then them speaking too. And yes, there will be, you know, presentation of information, right? Um, speaking directly to people who will listen and say, it's just not that simple. It's not black and white. Yeah. And thank you for giving a voice um, and a a language to people who may be very confused. Am I a victim of human trafficking? Am I not a victim? Am Am I making a choice? There's not a language for me. There's not a category for me. So I won't share my experience. I won't share my story. I'll just stay in the background while this whole worldwide movement is going forward that I don't exactly fit into that bucket. And, you know, I have not been a victim, but I can certainly relate to that as being a a mixed ethnicity person. There's never been a category or bucket or language uh, for me to share my experience. And so I think, unfortunately, it's a little more complex. It's a little more nuanced. And this research couldn't be more timely um, in terms of us perhaps being ready to embrace that it's not black and white. I hope I hope that I think you're right in the sense that I think that we are especially in the US getting to a space where we can have more of these comp, you know complex conversations and it's I I really love the fact that you're calling attention to the language and the identities. I mean, I'm an English person and I've always thought a lot about language, but it's so interesting because I remember in the early days of these interviews and we're continuing them, I remember asking somebody, "So were you choosing sex work?" and they were like, "Well, what do you mean by what do you mean by choice?" 
choose. And I, I uh, very much was then, oh, you're right. Choice is not. And so now I ask them, what does it mean to choose or other people who are interviewing? You know, what does it mean to choose or were you consenting? And we know that there's a continuum that exists when it comes to working in the sex industry. We also know there are people that are forced. So again, uh, giving people an opportunity to even to try to figure out, they don't identify. And we ask them, how do you identify? Well, I don't identify as a sex worker because of blah, blah, blah. I worked in the industry, but that's not how I identify. I don't identify as a victim. So these are things I think that are really, I exciting is a weird word to use when it comes to these really complicated issues and these really heartrending issues. But what I will say is for me, I'm passionate about hearing from people so that we can make better policy and we can better understand lived experiences so that we can be better people in the world. So I know that sounds lofty, but it's really a big part of why I'm trying to do this and work with this team to do this project. I mean, I can, I can see the excitement. I can feel the excitement. I can understand the excitement because my God, it's giving people a voice an identity. It's, it's helping to put the message out there in a uh, more authentic and genuine nuanced way. And that is exciting. So if people were interested in participating, um, who are you looking for and how do they get in touch with you? Yeah, I uh, appreciate that. So basically what we're, what we're looking for is people who would identify as being an adult consensual sex work, sex worker. So engaging, whether you, you use that term or not, engaging consensually in the sex industry, engaging in prostitution specifically, also having experienced coercion. So you may not identify as a victim of trafficking. You may identify as a victim of trafficking um, and having potentially been identified as a victim of trafficking. And then the third category is actually being convicted of trafficking. So if you've actually been arrested and convicted of a trafficking charge, and you were, let's say, consenting to engage in sex work and or were a victim yourself, those are the three primary areas of people that we want to talk to. There's a, a short little link. And one of the things that we've, we've done with, um, again, uh, funding support is we've expanded it so that we are, we're asking people to participate for, in four different languages. I want to break into the podcast and let you know that many people believe that all youth have the same or similar risk for human trafficking. Not true. There are some youth that are at higher risk for various reasons. If you want to know who's at high risk, go to my website, CeliaWilliamson.com and pick up my free assessment tool. It's easy to use, easy to score, and it's been validated to tell you which youth between 12 and 17 years old is at risk. CeliaWilliamson.com, look for the HT Risk Assessment Tool. And now back to the podcast. So we have English, Spanish, Vietnamese, and Chinese. And we have a kind of a blog overview about the study, about the project. And then there's a survey in all of those languages. And then we can actually interview you if your primary language is in English, right? And we really want to expand to all different kinds of people who work. So people who work in massage parlors, people who work in escorting, people who work street-based, people who work in DOM, 
or, you know, those different areas, right? There, we really want to talk to people in all different aspects to get a broad representation. We're looking at interviewing up to 100 people for the initial interviews, and then we're going to do about 60 in-depth. So we, we're going to be talking to a lot of people. You know, as you've been doing this, particularly swap behind bars, how common is it for uh, people who were victims would identify themselves as victims of trafficking and then maybe got 18 years old or became an adult and then was identified and convicted as a trafficker? I think that it's 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 far more common than than we may have than we may than we may like to think. Um, early on in the days when we started SWAT behind bars, we got a, a packet of letters from nine people in prison in Florida who literally outlined their experiences. All had been convicted of various levels of trafficking and had been victims themselves, right? And they talked in their letters and we actually were able to get a lawyer involved and she actually was able to go and start interviewing them and is working on clemency cases, which is just incredible, right? Like it's very incredible. But what was really um, challenging and, 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 and sad about that situation is the more that people talked about it in the prison, I talked to the lawyer after, after she had been working on it, Kate Mogulescu, I had talked to her later and she goes, we just keep finding more people. We just, they, they keep talking to more people. And then, then we just keep finding more people. And so she's like, we're, we're working on it. We have a small team, you know, we have a small bit of funding. We've filed this many clemency cases at this point. I mean, it's, it's, it's awful news and it's great news. It's awful that we're even having to go through this. And it's, it's great that, that, you know, attention is being drawn, but I think it's, it's more common then we we would like to think because we're always trying to draw these lines and especially, well, both in terms of prostitution legislation where everyone's a criminal, right? But also in terms of the trafficking legislation where we measure things based more on arrests than we do on creating the conditions that would prevent trafficking in the first place, like housing, like a living wage job, like food and resources and support and mental health and all of these things, right? So we're constantly trying to look at how many people can we arrest so that we can get our trafficking arrest numbers up, as opposed to how can we prevent this in the first place? So I kind of went off there, but I do think that it it it's more common than than we would like to to think it is. And that's just it's it's really it's really problematic. Yeah, I agree. I think it's very common. And while clemency is fabulous, clemency is a lot of hard work and you have to go one by one, which that's our dirty little secret in this issue is sometimes we're overzealous and we are just happy to jump on past laws and politicians get a pat on the back and it's great bipartisan issue and we know about an inch deep and we don't then talk about the collateral damage that we caused in someone's life. Someone was 17, 16, 17 years old. They were a victim. We've done absolutely nothing to support or help them change the trajectory of their life. They turn 18. They, of course, are trauma bond. Whatever happens, they're, they're supporting this manager, this trafficker, and they get out there, start working for that trafficker, and now they are convicted. And yeah. so... What role and responsibility do we play as the public in now 
taking away this person's freedom, opportunity, and changing their life trajectory, are we any better than the person who did that to them previously and illegitimately? Our only difference is we're doing it now legitimately with law and policy behind us. So uh, I applaud the work that you're doing in terms of policy because there are a lot of hidden victims that we aren't talking about that I think your research is going to address. So do you know when your, your research project might be done and when we might see a glimpse at any reports? Uh, well, basically, we're planning on um, completing the interviews, I'm hoping, by the end of the summer. Um, so because we have such a large, num- large number of people um, and we have a, a team of uh, four people who are interviewing total. So we're hoping to get those uh, completed. We are going to be presenting. Um, in fact, we uh, we hope to be presenting at, the, at your conference in the fall on initial findings, right? Um, but I'm hoping to get a, a general report out by the end of the year, and then we will definitely be publishing. Um, and one of the things that I would like to say is, as your listeners hear, I'm always open to, to uh, as your listeners hear about this project, I'm always open to hearing people, especially our participants. We ask them, what do you think of this project? We're also open, and it, it gets complicated because of human subjects and, you know, having confidential information, but, but we're open to having people contribute. So uh, people that we've hired on this project that are interviewing, who, again, have lived experience, um, are going to be helping us analyze and code. And we've talked about even getting like a community advisory board that would would help us to think through as we're analyzing and coding this data, okay, what does this mean? And how can we construct this in a way that people will hear it, will listen, right? And so it's, it's a complex project, but um, I, I think it's it's super important. And I think there'll be a lot of opportunities to get the word out in different ways. One of my goals and one of the Proteus Fund's goals is to get it out to the general public. They don't want it just as academic, you know, publications, which I completely agree. I think we have to be sharing it with the general public and with sex worker led and anti-trafficking organizations, right? So that people know what's what's going on and they can use that in their work. And then yes, I, I also I, I think academic publishing is also good. And so we'll do that as well. But it is a two to three pronged approach. Um, so I'm hoping by early next year, we'll have some preliminary reports and then um, publications. That's that's my goal. I would love to see it um, as the as time goes on being translated, not only for the practice community, uh, but for policymakers, so that you know there is a template even uh, that can go out to states to help advocates push for legislation or amendment to legislation, and you know just a just a map of you know what you could say to your legislature uh, and you know um, what they should add in laws potentially. I mean, this could be. I mean, it could go on for years and years, and I know you know. <laughs> It's been years and years, but but I just think that would be amazing to give people some type type of templates too for them to advocate in their states. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And, and one of the things that we're doing is really asking participants, um, especially in the in-depth interviews, what would you advocate for, right? What kind of legislation would you advocate for, especially when it comes? And these are the, the questions that I spend a lot of time trying to think about is, you know, especially for in more marginalized people and hidden populations. A lot of people advocate for decriminalization. And I've done research in New Zealand where prostitution is decriminalized. And I, I do think that decriminalization is, uh, is, is definitely a good first step. I don't think that prostitution should be criminalized by either for the seller or the buyer. But I will say that I think that's a first step and that there's other things that we need to be thinking about. So I'm really hoping to work with all of our participants to try to figure out what what makes more sense mm -hmm. in our in our society yeah and so let me ask you one last question is what do you dislike about criminalization and why is decriminalization the better plan um well so for for what what we have right now in the US criminalization criminalizes everyone involved so we know that victims of trafficking um have prostitution uh, arrest records right they they get arrested they have uh, they are convicted um they're also arrested for other other crimes um and so not only then do they have this record or are they arrested and then they have to deal with all of that which you talked about this collateral damage but then they now have this record and we know, and this I've learned a lot too with SWAT behind bars, we know that people who have prostitution arrests have a harder time finding a place to rent, finding a mainstream job, um, because, you know, this is on their record and, and people are, are more, even, even more, um, and I've learned this in, this in this new research, even more problematic than even drug charges, prostitution charges stand out, right? And so that is a, is a huge problem. But I also think that criminalization is a big problem because um, it, 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 it stigmatizes, it creates discrimination, but it also pushes everything into the margins. So again, even if you criminalize the buyers, right, this, you know, end demand and all of these policies that we talk about, it pushes it into the margins, it pushes it underground, and it sends this message that says what you're doing is wrong and it creates a space. And I, I will advocate for this and have not advocate. I will clearly argue and state it actually creates the conditions where violence and exploitation happens. It absolutely does. Even when we just criminalize buyers, just. So I think criminalization and, and the other thing that I would say is. I think that people who are engaged in the sex industry, and many of them don't want to be there, many of them want to leave, they are in a much better position if they are not criminalized to leave, not only because of their records, but because they can leave and they can get out. And if they are seeing any kind of exploitation or trafficking, they can come forward and they're not afraid of arrests. Mm -hmm. And I would like to say, I've, I've advocated this before, I've talked to police officers about this before, that people who are buying could also come forward and say, something doesn't look right here. This is not okay. And they could actually be the eyes and ears for anti-trafficking, right? And this may sound like a Pollyanna perspective, but I honestly do think that criminalization increases violence. And I think that decriminalization is the best way to go for all of us. Yeah, I think it does push things deeper in the dark, you know, crevices of life where um, you don't want to speak up. No one wants to speak up. You can't seek safety in a way that you could if you could access um, different resources. 
you know, that might be available to you. I'm a little nervous too about a male dominated police force with absolute discretion at the actual stop, police stop um, with somebody who's absolutely 100% vulnerable. I think that is that seed for corruption. And I know there are a lot of good police out there, but I think the situation sets itself up for corruption when, cause, cause, you know, corruption corrupts absolutely whatever that saying is. But when you have somebody with absolute 100% power at that moment in time and someone with 100% absolutely no power, then you, you just set it up for, for bad things to happen. So Great. And it's fascinating. I will say this, Celia, because it was fascinating. I did research on a Fulbright in New Zealand, and I don't want to go off on that, but I asked sex workers about experiencing violence at the hands of police, right? This we know happens a lot, right? For victims of trafficking and for sex workers, we hear this again and again and again. And I asked, that was one of the questions, do you ever experience violence at the hands of police? And I have to tell you multiple times, the answer would be, what? What? Wait, what? At the hands of police? What What do you mean? Literally, a pause, a not understanding that, no, we, we don't. Like, they, they were confused by the question. I mean, my jaw dropped. I was like, you don't understand that question? They, they are supported by the police, you know? So, I mean, I don't mean to get too dramatic here, but it was really eye-opening for me to hear again and again and again from sex workers to be confused about the fact that police would be violent against them. And of course, I am sure that even in New Zealand, there are people in authority who are violent. And we're not saying that the police are the end all be all. We have to be very, very questioning. But as you said, it sets up a situation where they have all of this power over people. And when it's decriminalized, that not only that, but then they can also threaten to call the police if things start to go sideways, they can say, I'm going to call the police. And that's a real option. Mm-hmm. So I, I I agree with you on that. Awesome. Well, it has been a pleasure talking to you. And I want to make sure. So you're going to give me the link. So if oh, anybody- I can tell it to you, do you want me to tell it to you? Yes. Yeah, tell it. Yeah. Okay. So it's a tiny URL. Right. So we do these tiny URLs. So you basically just type in tinyurl.com slash complex rights and wrongs. And I'll also put it in the description if somebody's looking for it. So please support this study because the more we know, then the more evolved we can be in our policies and our support to vulnerable populations. So thank you so much, Dr. McCracken. And I hope that once you get the findings, that you'll come back on the podcast and share those as well. I would love to do that. Yes. Thank you so much. Definitely. Definitely. Well, keep up the good work. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Jill McCracken talking about her latest research. And you know what? We didn't even get to talk about the Adolescent Sexual Health Research Project. So I have to have her back on so we can talk about that. But uh, this is a very serious issue. I, I can't tell you how many um, victims of sex trafficking have turned 18 or 19 years old um, to experience trauma bonding and to support the traffickers work and then become convicted of trafficking themselves. This is 
the victim that essentially is re-victimized. And it is a serious issue and it's a complex issue. And it's one that we don't like to talk about, and but it's one that we definitely have to deal with. I, I'm thinking of um, a friend of mine's uh, little girl that I interviewed at 19 years old, 14, she was trafficked at 19. She trafficked another 14 year old girl and she's doing nine years in prison right now. Um, I made the request that she be sent to a prison that offered a cosmetology program because that was one thing that she did want to learn so that when she came out, perhaps she would have a skill. But I mean, she has no support system right now. And the trajectory of her life seems seems like it could be poor. I hope that's not the case, but um, we have to deal with these issues. And unfortunately, we do use a criminal justice lens to say this is a victim, this is a criminal, but we know it's more complex than that. We know this is intertwined with all kinds of social issues um, and social issues that we're not dealing with in the law. And um, we're trying to deal with in our programs, but we need to put it on the table and we need to start discussing what we're calling collateral damage because each one of those lives is important. And so we do get overzealous. We are overly concerned with arrest. And while we should be because people should receive procedural justice, they also need a chance at life. And if you've been trafficked and you have been manipulated and you have experienced trauma bonding, then it doesn't really seem fair that you're judged on your independent thinking and behavior when your behavior and your thinking wasn't really all that independent. We talk a lot about trauma bonding, but we don't talk about it where it really matters. We talk about somebody's ability to have power, choice, and voices taken when they're under the coercive control of someone but we really don't put our thoughts into action. We still convict people, even if they were trauma bonded. That's, that's an issue, that's a problem. So unfortunately, you know, 139 episodes later, we still have more to talk about. This is a very complex issue, but I'm glad you're tuning in. I'm glad you're learning. I'm glad you're struggling along with all of us trying to figure this out and be as fair-minded as we can. Um, convict people who need to be convicted. Support people who need a chance at freedom and living their lives and allow people to make choices and have a voice and have power and control over their own lives, no matter what that choice might be, as long as it's not victimizing somebody else. So until next time, the fight continues.
Let's not just do something. Let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.